Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 296. Today is Sunday the 30th of September 2018. And this interview is with Marie Miyashiro, who's an author, keynote speaker and trainer consultant specialized in bringing empathy into the workplace. Her book, The Empathy Factor, Your Competitive Advantage for Personal, Team and Business Success, has been translated into several languages and I highly recommend it. In this conversation... We talk about empathy, why it's important, the ways to bring empathy into the workplace, which companies and industries are getting on board with her vision, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So Marie, piped in from Hawaii, I think you must be the first Hawaii-based uh, podcast interviewee of, of the 300 people I've had on my show. Welcome to my show, and I'm really thrilled to have you on, Marie. Uh, you are a, an author, a speaker, and very inspiring for me uh, about bringing empathy to the world. So in your own words, how do you describe who you are? First of all, Minter, aloha. Aloha is right. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be here. Really honored to be part of your your podcast series. How do I describe it? I think there's two phrases that I like to use. One is rehumanizing workplaces. My specialty is focusing especially on the workplace uh, through empathy. So it's not so much that we're teaching people how to do something new. It's that we're helping them remember something they already know and giving them permission to do it. This is the kind of feedback we get. That's why we're seeing uh, success with some of the multinationals we're working with where we've been able to touch, if you can believe it, Minter, I can barely believe it, hundreds of thousands of people uh, through direct contact and also an internal train-the-trainer program. So it's very gratifying, and Mm. I feel lucky to be part of those kinds of projects. So one is rehumanizing the workplace, and the other one is uh, really helping people be more themselves when they're at work. So I saw early on people have a lot of stress between like their work self versus their real self or their home self. So this is really about helping them bridge that and be one whole person all the time and uh, feel the joy and power that comes from that. Well, there's one of the more remarkable parallels in our approach, uh, Marie, uh, and maybe we'll get into that, but I'd be interested to know from the types of clients you get to work with, what are the profiles of these clients? Let's say, you know, between you and me, there are some people who are just empaths or, or, or naturally disposed to it, and the topic is just like peanut butter on a, on a sandwich. It just, it's natural, and uh, it, it, everybody's in the flow, and we get it. But then for others, it's, it's a much more distant thought, what, and therefore more complicated. The individual who might contact you might be empathic but might not have an environment that is fully that way. So give us an idea of the types of country companies and types of work you're getting to do. Are all sectors and industries coming, or is it, are there some groupings? 
Uh, no, I would say it's a cross-section of all sectors. I've worked with people who manufacture uh, missiles, you know, defense missiles, to uh, big pharma, pharmaceutical companies, some of the biggest in the world, to banking bankers, uh, to industry leaders in their field of retail, for example. So I don't think it's a matter of industry. I think more what categorizes them is one overarching quality that they all have in common, and that is the desire to grow themselves and their people in a deep and meaningful way. So that's one thing, Mentor, they all have in common, is they they want their work to be not just about uh, profit or productivity and not even just about success. They want it to have some kind of deeper meaning and they want to grow as human beings and they want their people to grow as human beings. And it crosses the university clients I've worked with. I remember once uh, I was, we do these pre-interviews when we're starting and uh, early on, this was a, a while ago, I was, I was a little intimidated because I was interviewing people with two and three PhDs, you know, not just one, but many PhDs. And uh, sometimes when an outside person comes in and it's mandated by their boss, they can be a little defensive because they've seen, you know, a hundred consultants and they're, they're smarter than almost all of them, you know. So um, I remember talking with this one uh, department director and mentor, he used, I think, 20 words that I didn't have in my vocabulary. So most of the interview, I sat down writing down these words that I didn't know. I mean, he was so erudite and so uh, learned, you know, and later he told me, so that was the introduction there. And later I sat in a meeting with him. So they were sort of like, okay, the interview was fine, but, you know, we just appease the boss. This isn't going to go anywhere. And I tell this story in my book. And we were in a meeting, him as well as his uh, peers, who are also uh, directors and leaders in, at this university uh, division, and with their boss, the dean. And uh, I noticed that people weren't listening to the dean. You know, half of them were doing some other things. And then it was my turn to speak, and they continued that behavior. Right. They were on their laptops. They were answering things on their phone. And I realized I was talking to just half the group. And the crown and of I, heads otherwise. Yes. And, and the, the, the leaders were the ones who weren't paying attention. There was a meeting of about 18, about seven of them were doing other things. So I realized the project was going to fail because they weren't engaged and they were just appeasing their uh, dean. So I, I, I named it. I stopped the meeting. And this is a form of empathy, even though people may not think it's empathy. But I said, I noticed that about six or seven of you who I'd really like to be engaged with are doing something other than listening to me. And I have something here that I think could make a real difference for you that you would like. And in this moment, I'm not at all sure how to communicate that to you. And the people who are listening, their jaws drop because they're like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? Yeah, really. 
breaking the good the good thing is these six people including the gentleman who used 20 words that i didn't uh, know um they put their you know they put their glasses down or they looked up and they looked at me later he became the biggest advocate of the project and the project was renewed for many many more months usually they have a six month contract it became a year and then some and he told me that that moment where I stopped the meeting and I was real with them was when he bought in. Because in their world, no one speaks the truth, he told me. Everything is camouflaged. Everything is a little bit um, colored. You know, because it's a tenure system and you, you don't want to upset people whose uh, approval you need to progress in your career. Right? So there's an upside and a downside of tenure, uh, the tenure system. And so this idea of being real, that's an example, a small example of what it means to be empathic with myself. So one is I didn't, uh, you know, I could have freaked out. I mean, honestly, you know, you're with this, these high-powered people. My contract is now on the line. And I'm going to say something that could be the thing that gets me fired, really. Mm. But being real, that's an example of how being real brought power to me because they knew, um, they knew, they knew I was real. Well, in that case, your intentions were good, and what you were trying to do was for their benefit. Uh, you know, we got yes. we got an hour. To, we we all going to waste our time. How can we not waste our time? Exactly. And and, a- plus- a- and I I had seen the the power and the benefits of what connecting empathically can do with teams and how much more alive people can be in their work. You know, uh, in Europe and in Western Europe and in the United States, uh, Asia is less so because it isn't measured as much. But you know, when they do these studies, and you've seen them in Gallup and other uh, surveys, most people don't like their jobs. Mm-hmm, for sure. So when you talk about this cross-section, they want to be whole, uh, they want to bring their whole person to the job. The individual who comes to you uh, may have that thought, sometimes even a mandate, let's say. But if, if they are not the CEO, and the CEO is not necessarily the most empathic individual, can empathy become part of that organization if it's not modeled at the top level? Yes, this is a great question. So... Earlier in my career, and I've been in it now, you know, a few decades, I would have said that the traditional model of organization development and change is that it's always led from the top. That's what the case studies show. Uh, But over the last four years, in this one case study that I'm working on, uh, with great success and gone to over 22 countries uh, internationally across all these cu- cultural differences, I've come to a very different conclusion. And I see now that when you think about revolution within cultures and even within, even in companies, Minter, I never underestimate now the power of revolution from the middle. The bottom is different because they have so much less power. So if you're looking at frontline employees, for example, but the middle has tremendous power because 
it touches both the front line and the top levels. Mm-hmm. And, and I see how it can create upward pressure. And I'm seeing now for the first time why this upward pressure is working. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think it's working with empathy in particular. And it, when I work with CEOs and managing directors and the top people, and you know this as well, and, and uh, those listening who work at that level know, the loneliest people in a company are those people. So there's something in this topic. I, you know, I, I can see you, so I see you nodding. But, but there's something in this topic where there's this subconscious draw for them, like, oh, there's something here. I'm not quite sure, but there's something here. So uh, that could be for them too, because ultimately, of course, great leaders do things that are the best for their people, best for their shareholders, best for their uh, customers, best for their company. Yes, great. But at the end of the day, there has to be something in it for them, mm-hmm. really. Otherwise, it's just this thing that they're doing. An intellectual exercise. Exactly. Or, like you say, maybe an artificial you know, endeavor. And so that is what I think draws them. The other thing is that they are already experts in empathy, but they've never named it as such and they don't know it. And the, the reason why they know it, and this is how... Uh, at the at the top levels of an organization, we teach empathy through their own experiences with their mentor. So anyone who has achieved a high level of leadership in a company of any size has done so because someone helped them. Nobody gets there on their own. Somebody mentored them, someone supported them, someone gave them a tip, Someone gave them a job, a, a, an opportunity. And so when, when, when they dissect that relationship, it's full of empathy. But they, they never thought about it that way necessarily. And so we use that relationship as a way to deconstruct empathic behaviors and mindsets that they then can replicate. Because they already have a sort of a cellular, mem- cellular memory and a physical experience of someone having treated them that way. And so, so now they have a template for how to do that. And, of course, the research is overwhelming, right, in terms of how uh, feeling psychologically safe by Google's Project Aristotle um, is the way to create high-performing teams. We all want high-performing teams. So, yeah, I would say that, um, that that's why revolution or change towards a more empathic culture from the middle is super powerful. Uh, One more thing I want to add is it's also a necessity because it's being driven by the demand from the consumer and the customer for being treated uh, as an individual with respect and people want to be seen and heard, right? So especially the millennials and just the generation that came before them, um, the market is moving towards see me, hear me, feel what I'm feeling. So companies that don't make that move are uh, going to be left behind. No, I think the business case is outstanding, and and you make a great, great case for it. 
a couple of thoughts. One of them is uh, Roman Krasnodar, who writes about the, the empathy revolution. And uh, so that's a hat tip to Roman. So amongst the things you were you were talking about, Marie, was that we're all experts in empathy. I've read a number of pieces of research that describe, and, and maybe it's because, you know, I'm a guy, uh, that that men have a, a lesser predisposition uh, for empathy, uh, whether it's genetic coding, whether it's hormonal imbalance or at least testosterone impeding our cortex from functioning that way, or just the way we think. They seem to show that the masculine mind, so you can have it in a woman's brain and so on, tends to be less empathic. And so I just wanted you to qualify how how much empathy we have in our system, if you will. And is it is it are there cases of people who are less empathic and, and maybe even chronically not? Yeah, so this is a great question. So first of all, we I want to do two things with that question. One is talk about what do we mean by empathy? Because if we hold a certain standard as the litmus test, that's going to color how we're measuring it. And I'll get to that in a second. Regarding uh, gender, of course, there's lots of research on how the biology and the um, environment and cultural norms have created certain behaviors uh, that are more naturally seen in women than in men. Having said that, everyone has mirror neurons. Science has also proven that. Including monkeys. Hmm. Exactly. And this is why when you see a, a video of someone getting hurt, you go, ouch, right? Your, your, your physiology is actually experiencing the same uh, symptoms of it. So what I can say is that gender is less a criteria for me on who is empathetic and who has capacity rather than how we define it. So a lot of misconceptions I have found about empathy. One is people think empathy is about being nice. And being nice means I want to be liked. I don't want to upset people. I want to have everyone get along. I hold harmony as a high value. So if we hold that as the standard, then women are going to score much higher. Mm. Because women have that maternal instinct, they're, they're uh, neurologically and biologically we're bred to make sure there's community, there's family, right? Because the, the, the child needs that, right? Um, but we don't, I don't define it and my team doesn't define it that way. This is one of the things we teach. Instead of being nice, in our view, empathy is about being real. It's about being authentic. And in that standard, men are actually ranked higher. Your, Your male colleague or peer or supervisor is more likely to... Uh, share feedback with you about something that's working or not working. And it might be uh, over, uh, you know. So let me let me give you a, a, an example of what empathy looks like and sounds like in the office mm-hmm. on, on in this authentic way. 
because people have a lot of confusion about it and leaders say they're so relieved to hear this. So one is it's not about making sure that someone else is uh, okay or that you're nice to them because sometimes feedback is very important. In fact, feedback is what makes teams go. You've got to have it. And sometimes you've got to make demands. You know, this isn't about asking. This is, hey, this has got to be done. I'm not going to, uh, I don't have. So the way to do that empathically is to say, you know, right now, A, B, and C has to happen. And I'm just going to be honest with you and tell you, I don't have zero space in me to hear no. So now you're being transparent. Right. Instead of couching it as a question, hey, can you do this? I mean, why ask the question when it's not a request? It's a demand. So it, just at this point, Marie, is that being empathic? Or yes. Is that, or is that setting up for empathy? No, this is being empathic because you're being real about what your internal mindset is and you're letting someone else see into your mindset. So the word intimacy, you can think about as into me see, right? It's letting someone into your world and your landscape and your, your worldview, your, your state in the moment. So if I say, I, if I go to someone, a team member, and I say, listen, I am totally stressed because A, B, and C has to get done for this customer or this team right now, and I'm coming to you, and I, I'm going to be honest with you, I can't hear a no. I don't have space to hear a no because I'm already at my edge. So then, the, so one is you're being self-empathetic. You've connected with something inside of you. Now you're sharing that transparently with someone else. So it's a strong move, but it's still a vulnerable move because you're actually showing someone something inside of you. And then the next step to make sure that the relationship remains interdependent is to make the demand and then to say, okay, how is this for you to hear? So you're not asking them, are you, you know, yes or no, but you're, you're just laying it on the line. And what keeps it from being power over? So empathy is power with, and the opposite is power over. What keeps it from being power over is this last piece that I ask, okay, what's it like for you to hear that this has got to happen in my, my mind? And now you're not having power over this person because you're willing to entertain what's happening in their humanity and their experience. And when this happens, no matter what roles we have in the organization or titles, we're both showing up human to human. And this is the great equalizer. And that's what allows empathy to happen. So in that case, when I tell that story to uh, leaders of either gender, but particularly to men or even strong females, the response I get, Minter, more often than Phew. not is, I'm re exactly, I'm relieved. Oh, thank goodness. Because they thought it meant not uh, saying something or asking in a really nice way to kind of cajole uh, coerce. So in uh, so the basis of my work is nonviolent communication developed by Dr. Marshall Rosenberg. And in this, it's called NVC for short, and it's 
named after, you know, the work of uh, the nonviolent resistance movement by Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. here in the United States. And what makes it uh, powerful is that anytime we cajole, we want to uh, influence without being transparent someone, it's actually manipulation, which is the opposite of empathy. That becomes power over. Mm. So sometimes when we think we're being kind by using nice words or framing it as a request, when it really isn't a request, then... um, then we're actually sounding nice, but the energy is one of demand. So have you ever been with someone where they asked something of you and it sounds, the tone is pleasant, the wording is correct, but the energy didn't match because there was the demand of an, there was demand energy in a request camouflage. Well, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, fine. Uh, is the only possible answer. Exactly. It happens every day. Yes, yes. And, and so this is the, the, the way authenticity can show up is, you know, that small example. So, so back to your male, female uh, gender issues, uh, men tend to score much higher when you look at uh, emotional intelligence tests or 360 surveys of uh, their leadership of being more direct. So directness is actually uh, empathic when you do it in the way I just described. So the two pieces, sharing what's inside of you that's real and then asking the other person, you know, what's it like for them now that you've shared your piece. The the other piece I want to add that's so important to me is I work with uh, a client team where one of the leaders is very direct, and she's always saying, oh, you know, I'm not very empathetic, and I'm just going to tell you like it is. But I love that about her. And you know why, Minter? Because I can trust 100% that what she's telling me is all there is. Sometimes you work with other kinds of people where they're, you know, very thoughtful, very considerate, uh, and... And that could be 100% too. It can be completely authentic. And sometimes it can be not everything. And there's a little bit of, like, I want this from you and I'm going about it this way without really being direct with Manip- you. Trying to manipulate. Yeah. So, so for me, that would be manipulation. There's nothing right or wrong about manipulation. It's just that it's the opposite of empathy. So when I, when, when I want to, when I want to manipulate someone, I tell them that mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to. So in, in business, uh, a couple of thoughts. One is to what extent when you're doing this work, the word empathy is something you need to inscribe uh, as in a value and, or do you need to change uh, what's written? Because if they're coming to you, it's possibly because they don't have enough empathy in their organization. And do you end up getting somehow associated with the mission and the values of the company? Because it really, for me, it, at some level, it's the operating system of the company we're talking about. Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very good point. It, it's part of, it's actually got to be part of the DNA of the company to begin with, to have success. And I would say 
70% of the clients who contact us are fall into that category you talked about, Minter, of people recognizing or may, perhaps they've done uh, market research or they know that they've done internal surveys and they know they need more of this. But the other 30% are people and companies that have it already in their core values and they want to know how to make it concrete and deploy it. So I just started a project with Netflix and Netflix is very much about authenticity and their own, um, this aligns with their core values and they want to take it a step further. How do we make it more concrete? How do we make it part of the daily conversations we have? So, um, so it's both, but in general, maybe 70, 30 is the, is the split that we see, uh, so far. So there are two things I wanted to cover before we, we close off. The first is how do you effectively measure empathy? Uh, and insofar as, you know, we're going to invest in Marie's program and some NVC and, and so on and so forth. It's going to be a return on investment. We, we're going to, it's going to, how we're going to measure the investment we've made in Marie. Uh, so go with that one first. Yes. So, uh, so working from the customer back, so if we look at bottom line, we, we're always going to want to know, has the customer been treated in a way that's working well? So instead of just measuring transaction the qualitative exit interviews, the net promoter score, right, is a very popular uh, metric these days. Those are things that can speak directly to how was I treated and how do I feel I was treated, answering from the customer's point of view. And then indirectly, what are the uh, effects on long-term customer loyalty Right. So moving from a transaction world to a relationship world in terms of measurement. So those things are there, and they're very specific questions you can ask to measure empathy. First of all, if we, if we had to do a very simple definition of empathy, it would be to, see, to be seen and heard for what matters to me in the moment. To be seen and heard for what matters to me in the moment. It's a very present moment experience. And customers are brilliant at telling you if that happened or not. So we see examples of this all the time. And it's common sense for uh, people who are customer-facing to know this, but it is not common practice, Minter, as you know. Mm Most companies are still heavily oriented towards their operational yeah. realities versus the customer's experience realities. Yeah. So, what about measuring inside the company as opposed yes. to the customer? Yes. So that's on the you know that's the external driver moving from the customer in, and then internally, you've got uh, the employee experience. So there's there's two different levels of measure here. And, and we actually look at three levels. One is the one we most commonly think about, which is your relationship with others. So that's what we call the you level, you know, between two people. But in our program, we really believe in the I level. And we're, we're, we're huge uh, proponents of this idea that 
we teach self-empathy first, self-connection. This is important and very popular with uh, leaders, team leaders, and top management because their jobs are so stressful. The stress level of uh, executives in any company pretty much across uh, the globe right now has gone up exponentially. Why? Because of the drive to do more with less and also this um, the accelerated pace of the world we're living in, right? Uh, some people call it the VUCA world, right? And, you know, VUCA, which stands for uh, volatile, unpredictable, um, ambiguous, and what's the C? Chaotic. Chaotic, yes. Comes from the American War College. It's a, it's a war phrase, you know. And the antidote is empathy, right? Empathy helps you be present, to what's happening in that moment to be more responsive. So, uh, so we measure also on the eye. And empathy involves a lot of mindfulness, breath awareness, uh, gratitude practices, self-acknowledgement practices. So these things all have been shown to reduce uh, stress levels of cortisone, and increase the feel-good uh, hormones. So again, this is based on biology and science. It's not just about something that looks nice. It's uh, physiologically measurable. So when people, so when we train people in empathy and look for cultural change, one of the things we monitor is how are they doing with self-empathy along those three categories I just mentioned, you know, self-acknowledgement, gratitude, and it's really self-celebration, not just acknowledgement, but self-celebration, gratitude, as well as um, learning how to manage their own nervous system. And that's all part of empathy because the more calm and uh, we are, the better we are able to uh, give our attention fully to others, which is what empathy is. Mm. And the number one deterrent of uh, helpful behaviors and empathic behaviors, as it turns out, is feeling rushed, feeling like you don't have enough time. So when our nervous system is thinking that, we'll be less likely to be uh, active listeners as team leaders, uh, willing to see other people's points of view in negotiations, which is a very important part. Uh, and this process, by the way, is a very important part of negotiations. Uh, as William Uri, who wrote the book uh, Getting to Yes Without Giving In, he started the Harvard Law School negotiations program, and he calls nonviolent communication one of the most important processes you'll ever learn for that reason. Okay, so there's the I, the you, and then there's the we. And these are indicators internally of how strong teams are. So the whole goal is not to be a strong employee. And in fact, a lot of people are moving away from talent retention to more of this idea of team productivity. And it turns out that very strong teams often do not have the strongest talent. They often have the best dynamics. Sure. of people feeling able, you know, to be themselves and to say what's true for them. And then in that way, they uh, generate better ideas in general than teams with, you know, really talented uh, single individuals. So the, the function of the team getting to the we is the next level. And that's also measurable 
quite how effective do you think your team is? How how much uh, do you feel comfortable saying what you're thinking on your team? Uh, so these are 360 kinds of reviews that can be very powerful. So for us, empathy works on the I, the you, and the we level. And the goal is always we. Uh, in the, the team is the we in the company, and then you have the bigger we of the division, then you have a bigger, you know, you have cascading bigger we's uh, and groups of we's. So in that sense, it's completely measurable. And... Uh, the best measurement is really how people feel, and that's completely measurable, and you can track that over time. Engagement, of course, is something, it's a it's an older metric, but I think it still has some legitimacy, you know, how much people want to be uh, active participants in the teams and the organizations they're in. So those are um, very measurable, and those are the ways that I think uh, can really show the benefits of it. Well, in in your answer, you you covered the second point, which um, very very well articulated the two damaging parts of trying to be more empathic are stress and time, and and in business these two things are on the one hand uh, overdosed and uh, underserved, and so the challenge is finding the time that calmness to cut out the noise to focus on you. And even if I have to make a, a harsh decision or a tough, you know, uh, there is no no t- demand, you have to ask the question, hey, on top of that, how does that make you feel? Well, I don't have time for that. And that, that, that there's a whole culture change that has to go on. It's not, it's not a neutral thought to try to allow for space, time mm, to listen. I love, yes. I love that you're saying that. Uh, you know, the beautiful thing, Minter, is that what we're learning from science, in fact, Deepak Chopra's new book, The Healing Self, has some research in it, and as well as Daniel Pink's new book, which I'm, which the title is escaping me. But uh, the beauty, and we rely on this heavily, and we embed it into our trainings, is that many of these practices can be done in 120 seconds, two minutes. Two minutes of breath awareness before you have a conversation with someone on your team or with a key client or a key partner that you think might be challenging. Two minutes of breath awareness or two minutes of power posing creates an entirely different measurable reaction inside your nervous system. And I'm convinced now that we don't actually talk to people as human being to human being. I actually think we talk to people as one nervous system to the other nervous system. And I started saying that this in one of the webcasts I was doing because we were talking about physiology. And I'm convinced now that it's really, that the whole world is really about managing our nervous system because it's the only way we perceive reality. You know, I have one reality before I do breath awareness for two minutes and I could have a completely different reality two minutes after that, without having anything else change. And this is great news for all of us who have sometimes very compressed schedules. Um, And you begin with two minutes in the morning, two minutes at lunchtime-ish, which people find to be the hardest because the mind is racing by then. 
and two minutes at night. A lot of our clients that we coach use the do the two minutes sometimes in the car just before they step across the threshold to their home, right? Because they they're bringing all this energy from work, like straight from that office into home, and they find that when they do just those two minutes at that point, it creates a transition for them to leave behind work and focus on the family, the children, or their own personal interests at home. So I I really want your listeners to get this one point, if nothing else, out of this, that it doesn't take hours. It doesn't even take five minutes. It can take 60 seconds or 120 seconds. The key is to do it three times a day. Beautiful. Over over a prolonged period, over 21 days to create new neural pathways. And people's lives have changed. I just got an email from someone we trained in uh, Hong Kong who are saying, you know, that she just started with that. She didn't believe it. You know, Asians, they don't believe it till they do it. (laughs) She's like, why are we doing this breathing? It seems like such a waste of time. But it was part of the program. She did it. And she said, now I understand why it really works. I feel different. I see the world differently. I'm different with my team. You know, so it doesn't take uh, a a huge investment. It's 60 to 120 seconds, three times Mm -hmm. a day. You start with that and then you see where to go from there. Yeah, so it's great. That's a bite-sized, realistic possibility. And it's like meditation, you know, you start with 10 minutes, but you'll end up, once you get into it, you could do it a lot more. So, Marie, uh, Miyashiro, uh, how can uh, anyone listening get get more about this, get in touch with your programs, uh, read your book and all that? What, what's the best way? Well, thank you for asking. It's empathyfactor.com is the best way to reach us. And we've got teams here in the U.S., Canada, uh, Western Europe and Asia. So, uh, you know, I or someone on our team um, can really help. And we're looking for people who see work as a way to grow as human beings. And be real. So that is just beautiful, Marie. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Minter. And best wishes to you and all your listeners. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's Finger Paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way To rid me of the gray You mentioned in your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas, hold me tightly Slowly we would paint a lover's portrait With all your favorite shades Hey
images in our palms make colors blend and look ugly in the end. But they're pretty in their own disgusting values. We'd hang our portraits in the hallways, make our house guests cringe. Oh, I wouldn't care. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.